0: Good morning, College Park. Our scripture reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 3, beginning with verse 27 through the 31st verse. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tracy. Will you bow with me again in prayer? Lord, you said in your scriptures that the entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. We've come from weeks of being out in the world and in our workplaces and our neighborhoods, getting all sort of simple messages, and our hearts are drawn to those. But we ask that today through your word... You would show us truly what is valuable, that you would turn our eyes away from worthless things. We might meditate on what will last for all of eternity. So we need your spirit now to come, to take your most holy word and do that for us, your people. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. For several years, I had a card on the bulletin board beside my desk at home. And the card said, the five greatest needs of women. Now, if you understand men, you know that we need this kind of help. Um, so I put it there to remind me of what my wife needed. And on the card it said, let me think. <laughs> Wait a minute, it's coming. I think I got it. Do you remember, Hun? <laughs> now, here's what it said. Communication, honesty, affection, trust, and diamonds. <laughs> I love that. And actually, my, our daughter loved it even more. And a few years ago, she came into my office and scratched out the first four and wrote diamonds, 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 diamonds. So if the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, the way to a woman's heart is through diamonds. But think about it for a minute. Why why do we love diamonds so much? Well, we love them because they're valuable. We love them because they symbolize commitment. But I think we love them intrinsically because they're beautiful, aren't they? Now, how do you appreciate the full beauty of a diamond? If you have a diamond on you, take a look at it. And if there's one in your row, look down the row and, and, and look at a diamond. What does an engaged girl do with a diamond when she first gets it? She holds it out, but does she hold it still? No, what do you do with a diamond? Here's what you do with it. You, you rotate it a little bit in the light. Because with every turn, you get a new angle of light and a new piece of brilliance shines through and shows you what a spectacular gem that really is. Now, a diamond is only a stone, but it's been sharply cut and defined so that as light shines through it, it reveals the beauty that is inside of it. Now, this is what the gospel is like. The gospel is the greatest treasure in the universe. It's the most valuable gift God could have given to us, his creatures. And yet I suspect if we're honest with ourselves, some of us by this point in the book of Romans are getting a little bit bored with the gospel. I mean, after all, this is the 10th sermon in the series, and it's starting to sound numbingly the same week after week. Well, there's good news for you. Paul, in our text this morning, takes the gospel like a beautiful diamond, and he Turns it in the light. He wants to show us the glories of the gospel by examining three beautiful facets of it. Now, notice the change in style. Look at verse 27 of Romans chapter 3. He begins to ask questions again. He's changing pace like a good speaker, he doesn't want to lose his audience. Uh, He did this at the beginning of chapter 3, and then he got into some very heavy theology. In fact, one commentator said there's some stylistic relief here after the intensity of the logjam of prepositional phrases and the tortuous syntax of the preceding paragraph. All of last Sunday's sermon, 21 to 26, is one sentence in the Greek. And Paul knew that his readers needed a break, and so he starts a new style. And what he does is he argues now with a Jewish perspective on what he's just been teaching, because he understands that the Jews would receive this teaching of the gospel like a bombshell, and they were going to have questions about it. And so he argues like a debate. He said, this is your question and objection. Well, here is the answer to that. Another question, another answer, a third question and a third answer. And in so doing, Paul rotates for us this beautiful diamond of the gospel. And I trust that by the end of our time this morning, our jaws will drop open at the glories of this great gift of God and his grace. Well, what is the gospel? For some of you, we may need to review this. Here it is in a sentence. This is a summary of last week and really all ten weeks. Sinful man is justified by grace through faith in Christ alone sinful man we were not able to keep the law we've broken the law is justified that means we have been made right in God's sight we've been forgiven from our sins we've been restored in our relationship to God by grace this is a gift you can't do anything to earn it and if you do you spoil grace through faith It does take a personal response on the part of every single individual. It's not a blanket pardon for all of humanity. In Christ, and particularly in His death on the cross that we read about in verse 22, alone, you can add nothing to the work of Christ or you destroy the gospel. This is the gospel in a nutshell. And for some of you this morning, this may be a new message. You may not have heard this. You may be visiting church for the first time, You may have grown up in a church that didn't actually preach the Bible, and so you haven't heard this message. You think that the way to please God is to try and do your best, and that in the end, God will be happy with that. Certainly, if you're better than other people, God would not punish you in hell, would He? You see, you feel kind of like the man that was out in the woods with a friend, and a bear started to chase them. And you've probably heard this story, but you don't have to run faster than the bear. You just have to run faster than your friend, and you'll be all right. And we think that the race of life is like that, that if we just keep ahead of somebody else, God's certainly not going to send everybody to hell. So if we're just slightly better, we're going to make it. Well, this makes a lot of sense to us in the 21st century, doesn't it? It it just feels right. Would, Would a good and fair God... Send a good person to hell? What do you think about that? Would he? The answer is very clear. God would not ever send a good person to hell. So then the question is, we've got a little teeny weeny little problem. And that problem is this. Of the 4,000 or so that will be here at College Park this morning... Of the seven billion people that live all around the world? Of the billions that have lived throughout all of history? How many of them would you say are good? Well, Paul's already answered that question for us. We know the exact number of good people in the world. Do you remember? Back in verse 10. Here is the exact number of good people in the world. It is zero. Zero. None is righteous, no, not one. And he goes on through verse 18 to describe what we are like. He says, we, all of us, are like bitter poison. We're worthless. We're just like an open, stinking grave, is what he says. And that's why we need the gospel. We need something outside of ourselves to come down and pick us up out of the mess that we made and deliver us From God's impending judgment. And this is the good news of the gospel. Now, Paul takes this glorious diamond and he rotates it three times for us in our text this morning. So we see three beautiful facets of this message. And the first is that the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ excludes boasting, verses 27 and 28. Look at those with me. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law, by a law of works. No, but by the law of faith, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, Paul uses an interesting phrase at the end of verse 27, the law of faith. And if you've been tracking with us through Romans, this should raise a question in your mind. What does he mean by that? Because all along he has been putting faith and law in opposition to one another. Law says do. Faith says done. Law says you. Faith says the son. Law says you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Faith says God reached down in his son and pulled you up through the cross. So why does he say the law of faith? Well, I think he's using a little bit of irony here. He's he's saying there was a law of works, but now instead of that, there is something that is even more important and significant. And it is the law or the principle of faith. It's no longer by the Mosaic law that people will try to be saved. It is by the principle of faith. And what is that principle? He defines it in verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. There it is. In fact, when Martin Luther translated this verse into the Bible, he added the word faith alone, which actually isn't in the Greek, but it's what this text is about. And that's what started the whole Reformation. There were some in the church that said, no, you must believe, but you must also have works to earn your salvation. And Luther said, no, the law of faith says exactly the opposite. It says we are justified apart from the works of the law. This is the great dividing line as well, as Eric mentioned, between Christianity and many other faiths of the world. Most other religions are the works of the law, whatever their set of laws might be. You do these things and God will be pleased with you and he won't punish you. But evangelical Christianity, biblical Christianity is entirely different. We operate by the law, the principle of faith. And faith says this, that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. But this idea of earning our salvation is so sneaky. It, it comes in the back door, much like the salesman I heard about who knocked on the front door once of someone's house and When the man saw who it was, he yelled at him and slammed the door in his face. And you know what the salesman did? He went around to the back door. He knocked on the back door. The the same man opened the door and he said to the man inside, the salesman said, Boy, I'm sure glad you opened the door. You should have seen how angry the guy was at the front door. See, salesmen are persistent, aren't they? And so is this insidious sense that we need to help God save ourselves. And what Paul is saying is the law of faith completely excludes. It throws it out the door. It slams the door and locks all the windows on any boasting at all. The law of faith says you don't want your works because they're just a pile of open graves. And even better than that, the law of faith says you don't need your works because Jesus has done it for you. Now the Jews took great pride in their observance of the law. And Paul, being a good Jew before his conversion, also took great pride. In fact, he listed in Philippians 3 all the things that he had done. He said, I'm a Jew, I'm a Benjamite, I'm a Hebrew. He said, as, to the, as a Pharisee, I was zealous for the law. He said, I was completely blameless in every matter of the law. Paul kept track of all that he did. And he said in Philippians 3, before his conversion, he had confidence in his flesh. If anybody could have made it in, Paul was going to make it in. But when God opened his eyes, when he taught him the law of faith, what does Paul now think about all those good works that he was relying on before? He calls them in Philippians 3, rubbish. He said, it's just a pile of garbage. In fact, Isaiah said in chapter 64 that all of our righteous deeds in God's sight are but filthy rags. See, my friends, our hands are dirty. And anything we offer to God is dirty because our hands are dirty. And who's going to boast in their garbage? When you roll out your garbage cans on Tuesday morning, do you look up and down the block? Do you say, I've got more garbage than anybody else here. I'm the best guy on the block. No, we're we're ashamed of our garbage. We, We hope that truck comes before daylight and gets rid of it all and just cleans it out. This is what we have to boast about. It's just this rubbish that we have created by disobeying the law and going our own way. How foolish is boasting? In fact, Calvin said this. He said, Paul is not concerned with the diminution or the moderation of merit. He's not trying to get you to think just a little bit less of yourself but does not leave a single particle remaining. The law deprives us of all glory and covers us with shame. My friends, if you want to make it by the works of the law, all you've got is a pile of stinking garbage. And who's going to boast in that? Well, what does spiritual boasting look like? Jesus gave us an example in Luke 18. He told a parable. He went into the temple one day and so said there was the Pharisee that was on one side of the temple, and he, he lifted his eyes up toward heaven, kind of like this. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men. Looking over at the tax collector. Because I, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything that I have earned. Aren't you lucky to have me, God, on your side? But over on the other side of the temple was the tax collector, a man who knew he was a sinner. And do you know what that tax collector said? He would not even look up toward heaven, but he looked down and he beat his breast. And he said one thing. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He understood that all he had to offer to God was his sin. And and all he could expect of God was perhaps his mercy. And do you know what Jesus said at the end of that parable? Which one of these men went to their house justified rather than the other? It was not this man, but it was this man who trusted in God's mercy and not in his own works. John MacArthur said the greatest lie in the world is that by certain works of their own doing, men are able to make themselves acceptable to God. The greatest error of that belief is its impossibility. The greatest evil of that belief is that it robs God of his glory. And that's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, By Grace, we are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. If we could contribute one iota to our salvation, then when we were in heaven, we would be thinking about that iota. We would be thinking that we deserve to be in here and we would be taking glory from Christ and bringing it to ourselves. And he will have none of that. That's not the way he's designed salvation. God chose what is low and despised in the world to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Boasting is so distasteful, isn't it? Uh, When I grew up, the way you played basketball was after you made a bucket. You just turned around and hustled back on defense. Now in the NBA Here's what you do after you make a basket. I love the first 18 seconds of that clip, but the last five I could hardly watch. Because I I hate it when people boast in what they do, and that's what that portrays. But, you know, I thought about that a little bit more. And that was an amazing spin move that Bosch did. He, He was about two feet over the rim when he threw it down. I mean, he actually did that. And where was I? I was sitting on my couch watching it. So who am I to say what he should or shouldn't do? I might say he shouldn't boast in that, but I can't boast because I can't do that. And there's the difference. And that's what God is saying in the gospel. He's saying it's not that you could boast about it and that you just shouldn't. He's saying that you can't do it. You've got nothing. In fact, all you've got is your filthy rags and your garbage to offer to God. So why even consider boasting? What a foolish thing to do. Boasting is so inappropriate. It stifles our worship. It puts focus on us and not on God. And it's really, when you think about it, absolutely absurd. I get to travel a fair amount in my role as the pastor of global outreach here. And imagine me getting on an airplane at O'Hare Airport and flying all across the ocean and landing in London. I've just flown across the Atlantic Ocean. Now, imagine me getting off the airplane and going off the jetway. And when I get off the jetway, here's what I do. I pull a Chris Bosh. (laughs) Somebody looks at me and goes, hey, dude, what's up? And I go, I just flew across the Atlantic Ocean. All right, something else. Now, that's so absurd, but that's what we do. Who should get the glory for me flying across the Atlantic Ocean? It's the plane and the pilot. I had nothing to do with it. All I did was sit my butt down on a seat. And the plane took me across. And that is the glory of the gospel. God has made the plane. Jesus has given his life to take us across the gulf and bring us into heaven. And all we have to do is sit down by faith in the plane that he's made. And yet we want to contribute. We want to boast. We want to say, God, we've had something to do with this. It's so foolish. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, boasting is so tiring. Now, let me explain that just a minute. You see, if if you're going to try to get in on your own good works, your accomplishments are so inconsistent, aren't they? You might be good for a while, or at least what you think is good, but you are going to run out of gas at some point. You're not going to be able to produce anymore, And then you're going to see somebody else just fly by you doing great, and you're going to think, this is hopeless. I've got no chance. You see, the law of works is going to wear you out, and it's not going to get you in anyway. The glory of the gospel is that we get to boast in what Jesus has done Forever securing our salvation. And we had nothing to do with it except sit ourselves down by faith in His gracious provision of salvation. Paul goes on and he turns the diamond one more rotation so that we can see the second beautiful facet of this glorious diamond. The first is that it excludes boasting. The second is that it includes everybody. Verses 29 and 30. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Paul continues his engagement with the Jewish readers by asking two more questions. And his point is this. If justification or salvation comes by the works of the law, the Mosaic law, and if only the Jews have the law, then the Gentiles can't be saved. And therefore, God must not be the God of the Gentiles as well. And his implication is, so then, Jew, are you saying that the Gentiles have their own God? And then he comes right back on them with their own theology. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema that good Jews recited regularly that said, Therefore, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is One. They believed strongly in monotheism. And what Paul is saying is the implication of your very own monotheism is that your ethnic and racial and religious pride is out of place. Because when you believe that God is just for you, you're saying that the one God does not have a plan for non-Jews. And that's a terrible mistake. Now we need to understand the Jewish perspective here. They, of course, knew that God created the whole world and everybody in it. But they believed that it was only the Jews that had a meaningful relationship with God. They had a special covenant relationship with Him. And the Gentiles could only share in that by obeying the Torah, their law, and becoming Jews. And we can certainly understand that perspective. It it was true to a large degree. Because in Genesis 12, God chose out of everybody on the earth one man to bless. And God goes on in the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy 7, 6. He reminds His people, the Jews, that out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, I have chosen you as my special possession. And He uses a very intimate Hebrew word there to to mean that you are the apple of my eye. You're my treasure. The Jewish people. And they were indeed God's treasure. But what they had forgotten was that their privilege was not intended for the exclusion of the Gentiles, but for their ultimate inclusion. And Paul has to remind them of that. You see, God's lordship as creator is even more fundamental than his choosing of Abraham and making a covenant with him. Monotheism must mean that all of God's creatures have equal access to God's grace, or else he's not the God of all. He is not a national God. He is a universal God, is what Paul's point is. And this only works if faith and not the Mosaic law is the way to be saved. Do you see that? Everybody can have faith, even though not everybody has the law. In our parlance today, we might say it this way. That the one God is an equal opportunity Savior for all of mankind. And that's why Paul said in one sixteen. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first. Absolutely. But also to the Gentile, because there is one God and there is one way of salvation and it is the law of faith. So now the circumcision, uncircumcision distinction that he talks about in verse 30, which is so important to the Jews for many years, is is basically no longer relevant. He says it doesn't matter. What matters is faith. Now, can you imagine what awful news the gospel would be for some if this were not the case? In a week or so, a very famous golf tournament is going to start at the most beautiful golf course in the world. There's a very exclusive club at Augusta National. Now, if you or I wanted to be a member there, what are the chances that we would get in? You need a lot of money or you need a green jacket. To get into that club. It's very exclusive. The gospel is very inclusive. It's not a country club. It's a people of God that's open for everybody. The whole face of the earth. Because there is only one God. N.T. Wright said the message is simple. All who believe in Jesus belong to the same family. And should be eating at the same table. This is what the message of justification is is all about. One God, one way of salvation through faith for all peoples on the face of the earth. John Stott said, if the gospel of justification by faith alone excludes all boasting, first point, it excludes all elitism and discrimination, also, second point. And this is what he's saying, the ground at the foot of the cross is level for everybody. No one has an advantage. It's open for all. But be careful what you hear here. Because he is saying that while everybody has equal access by faith, he is not saying that all humans will have equal participation in the blessings of salvation. He's not saying what so many people believe today, and maybe you've even come today with this idea somewhere in the back of your mind that if you picture God at the top of a mountain and salvation is, is getting to him, That there are many paths up to the top of that mountain and it doesn't matter much which path you take as long as you get up there. That's what our world believes to a large degree. That's not what Paul is saying. He is also not just saying that you have to have faith. And he's not even saying that you just need faith in God. That is not enough. What do you need faith in? Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The only way to the top of the mountain, the only way to be justified, the only way to have salvation is to put your faith in Jesus Christ, the God-man who came to earth and gave his life on the cross as a propitiation for our sins. So the gospel is universally accessible to all of his creation, which is the beauty of the gospel. And yet it exclusively benefits those who sit down on the seat of the airplane. Those who have faith in Jesus' work on the cross for them. So let's think about this for a minute. First, you Gentiles out there, which I think is most of us, do you understand how glorious this good news is? We were at one point strangers from the covenants of promise, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. But now in Christ Jesus, we have been brought near. The country club was exclusive for many years but now it's opened up Why? and we can all and those of us who believe are members of this club what amazing grace we don't have to become Jews we don't have to be circumcised we don't have to obey the Mosaic law The membership benefits are fabulous and it's a free gift to all but secondly if you are one that is now in this club how do you feel about those who are currently out And are you either by your attitude or your actions leaving some people destitute of the grace of God in Jesus Christ? You see, the theological roots for mission are established right here. This is the reason we reach the unchurched in our neighborhoods and through College Park Next. This is the reason that we reach the underserved in our city down in Brookside and through Nehemiah Bible Church. This is the theological reason why we're concerned about the 2.8 billion people in the rest of the world that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ because God is one and he has one way of salvation and he is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. But the way of faith, the law of faith, is open to all. And the question is, are you doing anything about that? Are you involved in taking that message to them? Calvin said it was of great importance that this point should be urged in order that a free passage might be made for the kingdom of Christ through the whole world. Do you believe that? That the gospel is for everyone? Are you living it out in some way or other? First, the gospel is glorious because it excludes boasting. Second, it's glorious because it includes everybody. And then finally, the gospel is glorious because it upholds the law, verse 31. Look at verse 31 with me. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul asks a final question. And while the question is easy to understand, the answer is not. You see, throughout, Paul has been setting law and faith in opposition to each other. And he's exalting faith over law. And you might even think that Paul has been nullifying the law by what he said. And this would be a problem for the Jews. Why? The Jews would argue that, listen, God was the one that gave that law in the first place. We didn't make this stuff up. And second, we've been operating on it for 1,500 years. And now, just like that, you're going to chuck it out the window? That's the objection he's responding to. And what is his answer? He says... By no means. A very strong word in the Greek. May it never be, he says literally. No way, not a chance that we're getting rid of the law. Rather, he says, we uphold the law. And what does he mean by that? Well, the challenging thing is that he doesn't go on to explain himself. Uh, In fact, in chapter 4 that we'll look at next week, Paul rehearses some of the themes that we've just seen. He talks about boasting in verse 2 of chapter 4. He talks about justification apart from the law in verse 6. He talks about the circumcised and the uncircumcised both benefiting from God's grace in verse 9 and following. But he never expands on what he means by, no, we uphold the law. And so there are several ways we can go in interpreting it. Let me suggest this is one option that's been put forward that it, this means that the moral demands of the law have not changed. And in this view, what Paul is saying is that even after justification, the moral law is still binding on us. The law of Christ, the law of love that he came to establish. And while that's absolutely true, it's not at all what Paul's been talking about in these chapters. He doesn't speak about the Christian life and about obedience until the end of chapter 5 and end of chapter 6 and 7. So it would be a little out of place if he was meaning that. Another option is that he means the tutelage of the law. By that I mean what Paul explains in Galatians chapter 3. That the function of the law was to bring us to Christ. How so? By showing us how terrible we are. See, the law shows us that we can't do it on our own and so Once we've understood that, we are desperate for a Savior and we fly to Jesus. And that is a function of the law, absolutely. But again, it's not what Paul has been talking about in these first three chapters of the book of Romans. So better, I think, is to understand upholding the law in these terms as the fulfillment of the law. We need to understand that the law was perfectly good in everything it demanded. We'll see in chapter 7, verse 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Those of you that are memorizing Romans 8, verse 4. The righteous requirements of the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's good. But what does it mean that we uphold those righteous requirements? It means that the demands of the law have already been met. Not in us, but By Christ. That's what I think he's driving at. How so? In two ways, I believe. First, it's clear that we have not upheld the law. Verses 10 to 18 couldn't be plainer on that subject. But there is someone who has obeyed the law. In fact, Jesus, when he came in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he was baptized in order that he would fulfill all righteousness, is what he said. Jesus fully obeyed every demand of the law because the law was good and it was binding and incumbent upon him. He obeyed it. He upheld it. So how does the doctrine of justification uphold the law? By a simple exchange. It says you people who did not obey the law now get to receive by faith Jesus' obedience of the law. He transfers that from Himself over to your account. He does a heavenly accounting maneuver. And He gives credit to you for His obeying the law. Where do we see that in the Bible? Second Corinthians 5.21 And for us He made Him who knew no sin to be sin in order that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It is in Jesus now that you and I get credited to our account the actual obeying of the law. And the fancy theological word for that is imputation. It's given to us for free when we did not deserve it because Jesus obeyed it. So in this great exchange, the exact righteousness that the law required becomes ours by faith. But there's a second way in which the doctrine of justification upholds the law. And I found this explained most clearly to me by a commentator named William Newell. And he took an example from the Old Testament law. Now, I don't want you to get confused. This is not current law. This was part of the ceremonial law in the Old Testament. But this was God's law. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Okay, there's the law. It is what? Holy and righteous and good. Now, what happens? A little bit later on, when they're wandering around in the wilderness, while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Bummer. Because we've got a problem now. Those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made Clear what should be done to him. What did the law say about this guy? Remember? Put to death. Okay, but that feels kind of of harsh, kind of rough. Just picking up a few sticks. So what if they had said to him, "Uh, listen, we know you didn't really mean that. You've just probably forgot, so we'll let it slide this time. What if they said, uh, okay, we'll let you off if you promise never to do it again. Or they might have even thought this, um, too, too harsh, not really fitting our sense of justice, so how about 30 days in the stockade, teach you a lesson, and then we'll let you out and be all right. What do each one of those responses do to the law? They demean it, and they trivialize it. They say it didn't really mean what it said. They don't uphold the law at all. What has got to be done with this individual? Well, they kind of already knew, but they just checked in with God to make sure. And here's what God said to them. And the Lord said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. How was the law upheld? By the execution of the punishment that was required by the law. Now, the law says, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The law says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The law says, the wages of sin is death. So how do we uphold that law in this doctrine of justification by faith? Not by changing the demands of the law, but by seeing that Jesus took on himself the exact punishment that the law required and he did it where on the cross Paul speaks of Christ's death all of the time Paul preached Christ crucified that he died for our sins that he tasted death for every man and that Israel who were under the law he redeemed from the curse of the law by being made a curse for him you see rather than the sinner's death that upholds the law it's the Savior's death that upholds the righteous requirements of the law When Christ died, this is what happened. Can there be any greater respect shown to the law than that when God determines to save men from its curse, He makes His own Son sustain its curse in their stead and fulfill for them all its demands? See, when Christ died, it showed that God took the law that He had given with complete seriousness. Someone had to die, and Jesus did for us. Christ provides the full satisfaction of every demand that the law makes and we benefit in that simply by faith. And so the righteous requirements of the law, Romans 8, 4, are now fully met in us because Christ's righteous obedience to the law has been given to us and because He died our death and paid the just penalty that the law demanded what an amazing gospel well we've looked again today at the glorious gospel we've tried to rotate it and see it in different lights see new angles on it the gospel is beautiful because it puts everything in its proper place it puts us as sinful creatures where we belong it puts the whole world from every nation tongue and tribe where they belong Possible recipients of God's grace. And it puts God and His righteous law where it belongs. Justified. The gospel excludes boasting and it brings us rest. The gospel includes everybody. And it brings equality. And the gospel upholds the law. And declares God to be righteous through and through from beginning to end. And more gracious than we could have possibly imagined. So how do we respond? First, if you have never understood this before, this is amazing news. This is the best offer you will ever receive in your life. And it's for you because God is one. You you don't have to obey the law because you can't. But you can come now and receive Jesus' obedience on your behalf and his death for your sins and be declared righteous in his sight. There will be some of us at the front afterwards who would love to speak with you if you want to investigate following that step of faith in Jesus Christ. And If you've already been justified by faith, then hear these words from John Stott. Praising, not boasting, is the characteristic activity of justified believers now and throughout eternity. Our mouths should be dropped open and should be shut in amazement at this glorious gospel. Finally, let me remind you of another group of people many years ago who were likewise delivered from a great judgment. God's people in the Old Testament, as we studied in Exodus, were brought out of the land of Egypt where they were suffering. They were brought into the promised land, a picture of our eternal rest. And right as they were entering it, Joshua gathers them together and he says, Do you realize how good God has been to you in providing this great salvation? He said, here's what I want you to do in response. He said, now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord. And the people said, we will serve the Lord our God and obey Him. And so like God's people of old, will us today, will we today, where God has put us, love, obey, fear, worship, worship and serve this great God because of His glorious gospel to us in His Son. Will you pray with me? Let me give you a moment just to let the Spirit of God take some of these words and work them into your own soul. If you're not yet a believer, we're so glad you're here. You've heard a message that can change your life today, for now and for all of eternity. Put your faith in Christ. Turn from your filthy rags and put on his righteousness by faith. If you are a believer, is there any shred of pride in you? Is there any tinge of exclusivity, of discrimination? Do you understand that God has fully upheld his righteous law in the life and the death of his son? Oh God, we stand amazed in your presence. How, how could this be? That Lord Jesus, you obeyed the law and gave us that righteousness. And how could this be that you became Not only our sin, but You took our death on Yourself. You met every demand of the law that was ours by right because of our sin, and You paid it fully. Lord Jesus, we love You for that. We want to go out with hearts full of praise and thanks and worship and obedience and service this week. Fill us with Your Spirit to that end, we pray. In Your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Go and enjoy the delights of the glorious gospel of God in Jesus Christ.